All right, we got a good one today. Sounds very good. That was the start of the show. You're supposed to keep going. What was the start of the that, show? What I just said. Oh. Yeah, this is the pre-roll. Oh, we're doing the pre-roll right now. Yeah, it's already happening. Oh, okay. It's already happening. So, um, that yeah. Was, it, it was very good. Chris is great. Um, and it's so, so nice to have him on. This is, this is of course, Chris Sprigman. Yeah, from, NYU Law Professor Chris Sprigman. Awesome. Uh, anything else, Joe, before we... Look, I think we should just get right into it, don't you? Let's do it. Let's do it. Now, what about feedback, though? Next week. Okay. Is that going to be an all-feedback episode? It is. All-feedback all the time? Yes. Mm, can't wait. So, if you want us to deal with your feedback... Make sure you send it fast. Yeah. So we'll get to it next week. Yeah, probably Oral should... Argument podcast at gmail.com. Probably should spring for the uh, priority postage on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because this is not a thing. It's If it's postmarked by the date of the show, that doesn't help us because it actually has to be here, right? Yeah. So this is not to... like, it's not like tax time. No, we have, but we do... Yeah, because we have to think about it. Well, but we have to actually have the feedback too. I understand. That's important, right? But having it even before we record about it is also good for so we can think about it. Chris Brigman. Chris Brigman, this is Christian Turner. How are you? Christian, how are you? I'm doing great. So what are we going to talk about today? It's up to you guys. If you want to talk about Baby Blue, the restatement, those are the two things that I had hoped we were going to talk about, but I'm, I'm flexible. Whatever you guys are interested in. All, all that's great. I mean, yeah. you heard the show on, um, that we did, the, the live show that we did about Baby Blue, and, and which I'm sure we got some stuff wrong, and, uh, and you heard my proposal to basically eliminate almost all the Blue Book rules except for maybe one. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I'm sure you have some views on that. I mean, obviously, that's partly uh, provocative. Although, although I do, you know, I, I would like to get into kind of the choices that you made. Sure. When you were redoing it in terms of providing continuity and trying to provide simplification. I imagine ultimately with a goal that many of us had that I had back when I was the editor at um, the Stanford Law Review. I, I really wanted to do away with the Blue Book then and create a new system of rules that was amenable to computerization, right? Automation right. of this stuff. And the Blue Book seems totally well, at the odds with that. Amenable but. to computerization. It's just that the Blue Book has, uh, the Harvard Law Review Association has, Association has objected to that. So there's been an attempt by the Zotero project to computerize the uniform system of citation and the Harvard Law Review people told them to, to get off their lawn. <laughs> That's and, in part what led to this. Ah, so say more about that. What's Zotero and then what's, um, uh, tell us the story of, of how the project came to be. So the Zotero is a project to automate various citation systems. Um, so social science, for example, citation systems. Uh, and there was an attempt to add Blue Book citation forms, so the uniform system of citation, which is the citation system the Blue Book expresses. It was an attempt to add this to Zotero um, that would have required, for example, Zotero to, um, to reproduce and to use the Blue Book's abbreviations. Mm. Um, now, the Harvard Law Review Association communicated with Zotero and basically told them that th this would land them in copyright trouble. And the Zotero people backed away. Um, so there's a history of this, right? There's a history of people trying to make the uniform system of citation more usable and the Harvard Law Review Association enforcing their monopoly. Now, now, now they asserted a copyright in the abbreviations? Yeah, they asserted a copyright in the, in the tables. So I'm not exactly sure what they meant by that. I'm uh, not either. That's what I'm trying to... Yeah, I don't, I don't think there is a copyright in that for reasons I can explain, but you know, they, that, does, that doesn't mean they can't assert it. 
Right. And you can imagine, so Zotero, I guess, is software that people use to do things like manage, like manage PDFs of articles and uh, create, write papers inside it and all that kind of stuff. Is that what that does? I, d- I don't know. I don't okay. know much about Zotero's function broadly. Okay. But, but to the extent, I know there are a bunch of pieces of software that try to do this where you're yeah. managing the citations and they try to import metadata from databases and all this other uh other yeah jazz, i've been but, using i've been using papers right when you just you type in you know there's a field to type in the title and the author and all this stuff and then in your work you just with and you can use a bunch of different word processors you just type in a certain kind of key signal or you right. select from a list and it puts it in and then when it builds the citations it builds it in the format that is expected based on your kind of what you've selected as the citation format that you desire mm, right right well, and, and so the tables at the end of the blue book of think a bunch of abbreviations for various journal names and yeah, but you know maybe it would help if your listeners if I told the story a little bit more linearly because th- we're starting somewhere in the middle. Oh, okay. Um, so we do, you know we don't really do linear on the show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I hear you. Let, but let, but let, it would be, this would be a great innovation in our show. So this is yeah. <laughs> this is the, 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 the only way to make mark. a story <laughs> something people can apprehend is to make it pretty linear. So um, so the blue book is the expression of a system, right? The, the system is what the Blue Book calls the uniform system of citation, which is a little bit uh, overeager. It's really a system of legal citation. It's not, no one else other than lawyers uses this system of citation, um, mostly because it's bizarrely complex. So the Blue Book's been around for a while. There, you know, about a century. There's a, there's a dispute over where it started. Did it start at Harvard or Yale? That dispute isn't really too germane to us, but basically the Harvard Law Review Association has control of the Blue Book. They share some revenue with um, Yale, Columbia, and Penn, but they control the lion's share of the revenue. The, the, the decisions about what the rules are and how they're expressed um, is, lies in the hands of the editors of the Harvard Law Review, so it's a small group of people basically not accountable to anyone um, uh, who you can't communicate with. And they're in charge of making the rules of legal citation and expressing them in the blue book. Now, you know, copyright covers creative expression, but it doesn't cover systems. Systems are not copyrightable. They might be patentable if they're novel and otherwise meet the requirements of patent. The blue book system doesn't. So this system is not covered by any form, we believe, of intellectual property. We set out to understand the system. So in other words, understand what the rules are and then just express the rules in our own way. And we hope to express them a little bit more simply and a little bit more engagingly. Um, and what we meant to do was just re-implement the Blue Book system in a more approachable way. And we call this Baby Blue. Um, so sometimes we could state a rule and we could state it quite differently um, in different language and make it perfectly understandable and usable. Sometimes we had to state the rules and language that was pretty close to the way the Blue Book did it just because there was no other way to do it. Um, Copyright law allows us to do that too because um, where you can't explain an idea except by using some or all of the language that a copyright claimant has used, the copyright claimant can't lock up the language. You're allowed to express the idea because the idea is unprotectable. You can't lock up the idea by locking up the language, the Mm -hmm. only language or you know, close to the only language that can be used to express it. So we're, um, you know, we're part of what we're doing is using the merger doctrine to unlock some ideas that have to be expressed in a certain way. Similarly with the, 
with the abbreviations. So the abbreviations are part of the system. You can't employ the system without employing the abbreviations. And so you've got to be able to access the abbreviations or the system would get an effective backdoor patent, um, which it's not eligible for. So that's, that's essentially what was our thinking. And we, we set out to do that. And it, it took a bit more than a year. Um, but we produced a, a, a manuscript, Baby Blue, and we, we put it up online and we've asked people for comments. And public comment period is open, I think, until the 15th of March. Um, Carl Malamud at Public Resource calls the publisher and he put this up online and he's handling the public comment period and we're, we're getting some really helpful comments and, you know, we want to improve this, make it as good as it can be. And the upshot is that people can use Baby Blue to produce documents that if, if a judge is reading them or another lawyer, they wouldn't be able to tell that you use Baby Blue. The document would look exactly as if you'd used the Blue Book. And that's kind of the whole point. Right. So this is one of the design goals is uh, is to provide continuity, not for continuity's sake, but to allow people to use Baby Blue right now and not to be singled out as having like uh, um, not followed the standard citation form, whether yeah. in academia or in practice. Yeah. So there's a reason, you know, that we're we want to at least start by being compatible, and that is that lawyers are intensely conservative when it comes to stuff like this. So, you know, they go through the hazing ritual in law school of learning how to use the blue book. So what we're giving them with Baby Blue is just an easier implementation of the thing they already know or the thing that they're going to have to learn. You know, later, I think, it would be interesting to start simplifying this. Once you free Baby Blue, both from copyright and from the governance control of the Harvard Law Review editorial Mm -hmm. board, then you can have people make suggestions about how we can basically trim this beast back and have a system of citation that isn't a barrier to the actual you know, production yeah. of ideas. Well, I, I definitely want to get there and talk about simplification because, uh, well, as you heard, I've got, <laughs> I have a rather simplifying idea. But, I, it, yeah. uh, I, but before we get there, I just want to go back to the copyrightability of, of the whole thing. And um, maybe you could compare, I don't know, it, you say it's a system. And you can't copyright a system. Is that like you, you can't copyright the rules of games or, or recipes? Or There is a fuzzy line there, right, between a system which is itself a creative act and, uh, and a system which is uncopyrightable because it's not a creative thing, but you can express that system. And of course, any expression of an idea, not any, but, but one which, which is minimally creative can be copyrightable, right? I'm not sure Joe and I, I, I don't know, we'll see, but there, there's... I think a right way to think about this and a wrong way to think about it. I think the right way to think about it is that systems are just categorically uncopyrightable. So creative systems, like, you know, um, a system for um, creating some result, like a drug or a system, like a process for creating a drug, those things can be patented. If they meet certain requirements, they have to be very creative. They have to be novel. They have to be non-obvious. They have to be useful. Right? They have to be described in a patent application sufficiently. So those things can be patented. Um, but no matter how creative a system is or a fact, you know, a kind of discovered fact, it's, uh, it's just not copyrightable. It's, just, it's, I think, categorically outside of copyright. And that's, that's 102B of the Copyright Act, um, which I think says this pretty clearly. Mm-hmm. Although the courts haven't always gotten it right, 
I don't think that's because the law is unclear. I think the law is very clear. 102B says, in no case does copyright protection for an original work of authorship extend to any idea, procedure, process, system, method of operation, concept, principle, or discovery, regardless of the form in which it is described, explained, illustrated, or embodied in such work. So you can describe a system really creatively. The, The expression, the description of the system might be copyrightable, but the system itself is not. And so if someone else re-describes the system differently without, you know, copying your description, they should be, they should be good to go. I mean, it makes total sense to me that you would need a, that you need a barrier between the copyrightability of, of expression and, and leaving ideas alone and that you would, um, that, that you would err on the side of uncopyrightability for things. But I'm thinking that regardless of the case law uh, for a moment, just putting things aside, just thinking about this idea about systems. I always come back to sheet music, and I know there are special rules for this, and there, there are a bunch of cases, so this is, this is well known. I mean, this has an answer, but just in terms of the concept here, yeah, uh, you know, a piece of sheet music is, in one sense, an expression on its own, but but really it's it describes a, a method for making the thing that everybody wants to hear, right? Is that an example of a kind of, if, if, at least if you see it in the right way, a kind of fuzzy edge case, which we have made non-fuzzy and non-edge by practice? Or, or are there other examples of fuzzy edge cases? Or do you disagree with my characterization of... No, I think your characterization yeah. is both correct and interesting. It opens up some questions about how we view things like sheet music. So recipes are not copyrightable. So recipes for you know a cake, a, a really nice cake, not copyrightable, right? So some descriptions and recipes, some like literary, literary descriptions and recipes can be copyrightable, but the, the, the list of ingredients and the description of the processes that you put those ingredients through, the actual core of the recipe, the functional part, not copyrightable. So you can think of sheet music like a recipe, right? So it's a recipe for producing the Ninth Symphony, the sheet mm-hmm. music, right? But, and what, what do I mean by producing the Ninth Symphony? Producing the sound that is represented by the Ninth Symphony. I don't think of sheet music that way. I mean, if you thought of sheet music that way, you would think, well, this isn't copyrightable. Right. Like, here's how I think of sheet music. I think of sheet music as the fixation of a musical work, right? So the musical work is the Ninth Symphony. Well, the Ninth Symphony is out of copyright. It's in the public domain. Let's, let's take a, uh, a contemporary song. So, you know, Katy Perry's Firework, mm-hmm. if there's sheet music for that, that is a fixation in a tangible medium of the musical work. It's a copy of the musical work. And so if I copy the sheet music, I've copied the work, um, which is you know, what copyright law is basically there to superintend. Or if I perform publicly the sheet music and produce a public performance of the Katy Perry musical composition, I have publicly performed the work, which is part of what copyright law is there to superintend. So I don't think of the rules in the blue book as the same as the sheet music for Katy Perry's Firework. I think they're different. Yeah, and I just I just wonder if the if our conception of a piece of sheet music as artistic expression itself mm-hmm. relates to the maybe the fact that there are some people for whom the sheet music itself evokes the music or evokes yeah. ideas. In, in which case, like whether a whether something is a system which is uncopyrightable or a process which is uncopyrightable or a, or a work of creative expression kind of depends on our kind of human capacities to communicate things to one another and how we receive these. Because I could easily imagine, I don't know, if, if we made music only by feeding them through complicated machines. And, and so what, what is sheet music, in fact, is a 
complicated system of uh, uh, of dots and dashes and things, and, and and so no human could read it and know what's going to come out. Because yeah, it's really but the copyright law takes care of that. The copyright law anticipates that problem, mm-hmm. and it says in 102a, it says copyright protection subsists in original works of authorship fixed in any tangible medium of expression from which they can be perceived, reproduced, or otherwise communicated, either directly or with the aid of a machine or device. So in other words, I fix a sound recording in a CD. Okay, I'm dating myself. Like yeah, Nobody right. does that anymore, right. but I fix a sound recording <laughs> CD. Now, I can pick up that CD and I can't see a thing. I can't, right. see, I can't hear the sound recording just by looking at the CD or you know, holding the CD up to my ear. I need to put the CD into a CD player, and mm-hmm. that complicated machine intermediates for me with the aid of that machine, I can experience the sound recording, right? So that plastic disc is a tangible medium of expression that communicates with me through the agency of a device. And that's a perfectly good copy. That's a perfectly protectable copy of that sound recording. So, it, yeah, and with recipes, there's no, if everybody had a form of synesthesia where they would read a recipe and it would evoke flavors and emotions in the mind. I mean, that, I think you're off. No, I, I, I think you're, um, I'm just trying to push out the edges of this thing. Sure. I've always uh, but wondered I, about what it. I think you're, what I think here, you're so. missing though is your, your, a recipe is a, a recipe is uh, pulled together and, and established for the purpose of allowing someone to successfully make the food that the recipe tells them how to make. So the so the utility of making the food is is really the object of establishing the recipe. The object of establishing the music to have the aesthetic experience of that musical composition is is simply not of the same type. And and you can make arguments about utility and of course there's I enjoyment think, yeah, in hearing absolutely. music and I understand yeah, all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The extent to which the experience toward which you're pointing the recipient of the communication if, is it an aesthetic experience, a moral experience, like from a novel? Mm-hmm. Um, is it an aesthetic experience from music or, or or even dance, a dance performance? Versus a communication that lets someone get something else done, right? Where it's a making of a plate of food or um, getting a, a getting a the with the system of citation, right? Yeah, getting a reader to be able to find a source that you use to write something, they can find it on their own now as well. But, but, right? but if I hear you right, like you're saying that that the distinction relies on whether culturally we imprint a utilitarian or we have a utilitarian attitude toward the instructions, right? And and if we have an aesthetic attitude toward the instructions it looks more like sheet music. If we have a utilitarian attitude toward the instructions, it looks more like recipes. And I actually think that's a contested case. Yeah, but, it, but again, I mean, I think with sheet music, it, it, it's, it's, it's not only instructions, it's a fixation in a certain notation system of the musical work. So it itself is a copy, right? It's, it, there's a copyrightable work, the musical work, which might exist in your head, and as you're playing it in your head, you're writing it down in standard musical notation on paper. That is a fixation of that work because for people who speak that language, they can reproduce the work either in their head or on a, on a, on a keyboard or whatever, but they can reproduce that work. So that is a copyrightable thing because it fixes a musical work. So the blue book does not fix a copyrightable thing. It basically expresses rules. Now, the right. expression itself might be copyrightable in part. 
but the rules, the underlying thing, is not is just categorically not a copyrightable thing. Yeah, to me, the Blue Book is a much easier case even than recipes. The expression of the Blue Book doesn't evoke any kind of aesthetic work. It doesn't. All it expresses is a system that is obviously utilitarian, right? It, Where I think we were going earlier, though, and I and and I have just taught some of this stuff to my IP survey students, Lotus against Borland, and and some other um, cases, sort of that that try to plow up some of this material that um so it's been on my mind quite a bit lately i think that the 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 notion that a, a person might look at the fact that you can express the uniform system of citation in multiple ways and mm-hmm. say aha that means i really can copyright the system and i think that person's making a mistake of the sort chris has already been pointing to which mm-hmm. is no w- w- when you know it's a 102b excluded system or excluded method of operation right it doesn't matter how many ways there are to express it copyright law doesn't protect the system itself just like it wouldn't protect the fact that the titanic sunk just because there are multiple ways of expressing the fact that it sunk right yeah. Right. And in Lotus against Borland, which is the case about the menu, the command menu hierarchy, that one spreadsheet copies off the incumbent spreadsheet so that it, the switching costs are lower for people who this is Judge Boudin's concurrence, the way he thinks about the case. You're talking about the menus at the top. Yeah. Of the, thing. the pull down yeah. menus. Yeah. Pull down so menus. the fact that you could say instead of delete, you could say garbage or trash or junk or or uh, eliminate the fact mm-hmm. that you could say it in many different words doesn't protect it as a method of operation, right? Yeah, but elimin- um, eliminate in the trunk doesn't have the same ring, does it, Joe? That's <laughs> <laughs> junk in the trunk quite true. Um, you have to separate this insight from the fact that there are some cases where where people would agree that it's not really so much a 102B issue yeah. system or method of operation. They would say, like you did with the rules of a game, Right. If there aren't very many ways to describe the rules of how to hold a raffle, uh, then letting someone copyright any particular one of those very small number of ways could raise a could raise a concern. And I don't think that's quite what 102B. Chris might disagree, but I don't think that's quite what 102B well, we could go, is aimed at. Yeah, we could go deeper into like you know underlying all this is a concern about blocking future platforms for creativity, etc. Yeah. And, and but. And I think there's also I, I think a, the baby blue is uh, blue book is such an easy case, right? Uh, I'm well, not, sorry, not according to the Harvard Law Review. So. Yeah, but uh, well, <laughs> do you want to tell us so, what what is the best possible? I don't I don't want to make you argue against your own work, but like I don't even get how I don't get the rational basis upon which one could make a claim about copyrightability here. Well, I have to say I'm I'm waiting still to hear from the Harvard Law Review Association in any detail what it is they think the, the copyright problem is. You know, they wrote us a letter, basically a kind of lawyer letter. Yeah, we, we, linked, we linked that in the last show. We'll link it up again. But, yeah, yeah, so they, you know, on Christmas Eve, we got a lawyer letter <laughs> basically saying that, um, which makes you wonder about the culture of lawyering. So someone's in, in the office on Christmas Eve beavering away uh, to write a lawyer letter that threatens copyright infringement liability for something they've never seen. Right. So they I don't know what they were thinking we would do. Um, I had been pretty clear in the interviews that I had given to a few press outlets that were interested in the issue as to what our plans were, which was to basically just re-express the rules in a way that avoided copyright liability. So, you know, they 
they, they, I don't know, maybe they didn't read those articles or maybe they didn't believe them. But in any event, we got this letter. So we don't really know what the objection is. And I don't really want to speculate. But at this point, it's, it's unclear. They, they are, it is clear to me, they are annoyed at the name. Mm. It isn't a copyright issue. That's a trademark, it's a trademark issue, right? Issue, right. Yeah. So um, now what the trademark law would say is it would be a problem with us calling this baby blue. Actually, it's called Baby Blue's Manual of Legal Citation. This, this name would be a problem if it was likely to confuse consumers, that is, the people who use legal citation manuals, regarding the source of the product. So mm-hmm. if, if some substantial number of people would think that this product comes from the Harvard Law Review Association or whoever puts out the blue book versus someone else, then this might be a problem. So there's, there's a couple of responses to this. One is, oh, come on, right? So <laughs> on, the, on the cover of this thing is a baby dressed in blue eating a bowl of something with a dog trying to eat out of its bowl. Okay, so this is very un-Harvard blue book. There's a disclaimer right on the cover that says, you know, not affiliated with or approved by the Harvard Law Review Association or the blue book. You know, we tell people very clearly in the the book what it is we're doing. We we are we are re-implementing the system of citation that the Blue Book implements. We are not the Blue Book. We are not associated with them. We don't want to be associated with them, right? We 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 are in fact um, completely independent. So I, I don't think there's much likelihood for confusion. Let let me tell you the why we picked the name Baby Blue. It's not an accident. It's very deliberate. So when I was in law school, a little, little bit before I got to law school, so I went to the University of Chicago for law school, and the University of Chicago Law Review did something that was very University of Chicago. They, they decided, you know, the, the, the uniform system of citation in the Blue Book is, is bad. It's too complicated. Let's just produce a new citation system. We'll, we'll, we'll make a little book. It'll be like 30 pages um, called the Maroon Book, and it'll be lovely and easy to use, and easy to learn, and everyone will switch to it. So it was lovely, and it was easy to use, and no one switched to it. <laughs> and the reason is because like people learn the Blue Book, and you know they they basically teach the new generation of lawyers what they suffered to learn. Right? It's like this awful part of human psychology, but hazing is actually kind of effective. So if you want to provide the possibility for some change in the legal citation system, before you beat them, you've got to join them. And, you know, the way to join them is basically set the rules free from copyright. So just produce a version, an implementation of the rules that is not under whatever copyright the Harvard Law Review Association has in their expression of the rules, and then give it to the world and say, you know, there are lots of ways this could be improved. Let's start thinking about this. Not, you know, a few people in an office at Harvard, but all of us, right? All of us who have a stake in this system, which is a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's the idea. Like, to, if, if we're going to compete with them, the first thing to do is be blue. You want to say, you want to indicate on there that, uh, that, you, that this guy that you're about to read is, com- is broadly compatible with the yeah. blue book system, right? You want to indicate that if you use right. this book, you're not going to be laughed out of court yeah, or have are, your article we are rejected. Absolutely, you know, clear about that. Yeah. I wrote a forward to the manual that uh, makes clear to people that if they use Baby Blue, they will produce documents that look blue, that that are indistinguishable from um, documents that are produced 
using the blue book. And that's that's an important place to start. So there are a lot of fun trademark um, things here that that all point away from the notion that a person who encounters this thing would be confused. Um, in fact, they're, it's incoherent to say, uh, for example, I want to convey that I'm compatible with this other thing. Well, if I understand you, that means I know you're not that thing. Right. Or compatibility would be a senseless thing to try to convey. Right. Um, and in a way, it reminds me of the fact that, um, although this is maybe a little distant, but but in a way, it's it's sort of like the conventions in um, store brands for various sugar substitutes. Uh, you know, that's a terrific example. Go ahead and lay that out because that that's exactly what I had in mind. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so the idea that you want to you want to communicate to someone visually that they're encountering something that's of the right category type it's a, it's in essence a comparative advertising claim. Right. Um, compare my um, packet of aspartame to the packet of aspartame produced by the people who created the original. I can't even remember the name of that product anymore. Nutrasweet. Yeah, NutraSweet. Yeah, so um, or blue, right? Or yeah, blue or sucralose yeah. would be um, would be yellow for uh, uh, Splenda, right? And this is something that everyone does, uh, and that it's true. And in fact, in the Splenda example, there there actually was a case uh, that that McNeil brought, I think, against some people who were going beyond simply using yellow packets. And we're doing more to create a box on the grocery store shelf that it was harder to tell apart from a Splenda box. And that's what got them into trouble. But the notion that in the sort of the semantic economy of people being at the grocery store, making a comparison claim, compare my product to that other name brand product, that's a really important pro-social behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and it very much is not confusing someone into thinking you're that other company. Right. In, in, in fact, it's emphatically the reverse. I'm definitely we're not, not that them. other company. We're the competitor of that other company. Correct. <laughs> and that's like very, very good for consumers. Um, and you can do it using visual cues, like the color of the packet. Yeah. Uh, so I think saying baby blues system of citation is a, is a nice way to, in, in essence, make a comparative shopping claim or a comparative consumption claim compare us to the blue book i can see possibly more difficult cases like if you had called it the blue book junior right uh, or blue book advanced or blue book next or any any of those words which included the whole thing blue book right right where people might you know even though you wrote the forward even though you know i, I don't know maybe people would it's hard, it's hard to know in, in a world where people are going to download this thing and actually use it. If anyone is going to use it in place of the blue book, they're going to read the other stuff too and they'll quickly know that this is not right. Harvard. But but let's set all that aside and just imagine that you have to distinguish it on its face. I can see that if it were called Blue Book Junior, that, that perhaps people might think, well, this is just a, like a, you know, a, a smaller companion of the blue book or this is a, something else turned out that will be you – know, it's a different, way of, a different way of expressing the original blue book but maybe a more convenient one. Right. Or blue book next is their, what they intend to super – it's their next right. product or something. So I could see and, that. And we but. can all see – so we can all see that that you know, begins to be problematic. I think, I think everyone would have to agree, including the Harvard Law Review people would have to agree that – a sentence in the introduction to a book that had some other name and some other cover design, simply having a sentence in there that says this system is compatible with the system known as the blue book. Right. right. In other words, a nominative use of their mark um, 
every it, I mean, it's clear beyond any doubt that's absolutely not infringing. Even on the cover, right? Well, Even though, so I'm, I'm not clear beyond any doubt. So I agree with you, but I'm not <laughs> sure they feel that way. So Really? For that purely nominative use in the text of a book? Yeah. So we've heard pushback, for example, about the shade of blue that we use. We've heard pushback mm, Qualitex. about... Yeah, <laughs> we've heard, but you know, there's, there's, there's nothing distinguishing about that shade of blue. I don't think there's, we've heard, you, you know, Chris, back. you know what's interesting about that now is, yeah. is that the fact that that shade of blue might carry signal about source. I can only think of like, like we own that shade of blue because of the uh, PTSD and tremors that people experience when they see that book again, having experienced yeah. the hazing <laughs> that you talk about. And like, we own that emotion of, of, uh, of terror and, uh, and, and and suddenly you're you're by using that same shade of blue maybe you are yeah uh, but guys just to be emotion. clear in terms of how we use that same shade of blue so the cover of our book is not that shade of blue yeah that shade of blue is used in the gown of the child on the cover and yeah in, your book is maroon it's maroon <laughs> yeah yeah well, is, is Chicago good. suing you too no <laughs> <laughs> I love the University of Chicago see they they don't they they believe in competition but they also believe in property. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think I think that they they probably uh, they probably feel that uh, they would. I, I can't put words in their mouth, but we haven't heard it from them. So uh, the other way we use the blue is inside the book. We have these pointers that are called baby blue clues. The title "Baby Blue Clues" is blue. So mm-hmm. we, you know, I heard a complaint about the shade of blue, which struck me as like, wow, that's kind of odd that we've got the word. Inside, inside the book, we've got the word baby blue clues in a shade of blue that's approximating the Harvard Law Review's blue. Now, you don't, you don't use like a blue paw print in there, do you? I mean, I can understand the people from Blue's yeah. Clues coming yeah, after you. Yeah, I don't want you, the but... Blue's people to. <laughs> right. Chris, I think you misunderstood my hypo. I, when I was saying the nominative use, I, I was simply referring to uh, naming that book by its title in normal yeah. typeface. Yeah. Um, not a, in other words, black on white. Um, not trying to approximate their font, not trying to approximate the the presentation of the way they present their cover. So purely a nominative use. Yeah, right? well, you know, I got to say that we've actually heard from them on a couple of occasions. Well, you refer to the blue book here, you refer to the blue book there. And a little bit of discomfort with that. And the truth is, when we're referring to the blue book, typically we're doing that to explain why the blue book does something a certain way. And why we think it's not particularly good, but we're doing it that way because we kind of have to, because our goal is to make this blue compatible. Right. If they're complaining about that, it's, it's a terrible complaint, both because of the nominative fair use argument that you just laid out and because we're actually critiquing them. Of course. I mean, uh, the fact that you're getting pushback says nothing about the strength of the claim. I would be pushing no, back it, all kinds of ways if I had a, a monopoly over right. a citation system right. used by an entire industry. And someone produced a substitute which was just as good in every way. When you hear arguments as bad as theirs sound to me, um, that just underscores the importance of obliterating their control because they're obviously morons. <laughs> no, we want to have them on the show, though, don't we, Joe? No, 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 no. I don't think they're morons. I don't, I don't think <laughs> yeah, anyone no, involved no. with this is a moron. I think they're all very smart people. Yeah. Well, and I don't, I don't question Well, fine, they have really bad judgment. Um, that's a terrible well, claim to make that someone can't refer to a book by its title in order to make a critical well, comment be, on the content of the book. To be clear, though, um, you said that they, you've gotten some pushback. I mean, it's perfectly fine for them to say we would rather you stay separate from our project. Did, did you understand them to be raising yeah, a particular legal clear, claim? I mean, they, they didn't make a legal claim. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Referring to their book critically. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't want to like put too much... I, I don't want to blame them for things that they haven't, that they haven't 
done. Yeah, exactly. So, right. You know, we, we've had some pushback, and I, I feel that that makes me uncomfortable because I, I get the sense, well, you know, they're thinking along these lines. But the truth is, th- these are students who are editors of the Harvard Law Review. These are, you know, people who are smart. And the Harvard Law Review Association has hired counsel that's able. And I, I don't doubt their intelligence, nor do I doubt their motives. I, what, I, what I'm just saying is, there, there are some pretty interesting currents back and forth here where I feel that what we've done is, is really a clean job under the IP law. It's, it's, it's something that is permissible. We've, we've basically followed the letter of the law, but we've also provided something that I think is good for the public and is good for the law. We've provided the opportunity to have a conversation about what our citation system should be and whether our current citation system functions as a barrier, and if so, whether it can be made better. That's the conversation we're looking to spark. We're not looking to pirate anything. We're not looking to make any money. I mean, we're giving this away for free. We've given it to the public domain. We're not, you know, looking to take advantage of them. This this was a year's worth of work. I, I wouldn't recommend that people do this from scratch unless they have a year to spend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this is not like just pressing, you know, the copy button. <laughs> right. So we we are, you know, we'll see what happens. But um, I am confident that you know, both in terms of the law and in terms of how people see us, we'll come out okay. Yeah, I think the important thing here too is it's 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 as you say in the in the latter part of your comments there it's it's not just that you've you're kind of excused from copying because you're operating within the letter of the law it's it's more that while there might have been a time and place and context in which the work and energy that went into maintaining a uniform system of citation it, it made sense for one entity to do that it made sense for that entity to be able to profit on the sale of physical books that time and place is gone, is no longer. It makes no sense for one private entity to maintain control over the way that lawyers communicate with each other anymore. It's inconceivable in in any other context that this would happen, especially where you're not just talking about profit makers within an industry using a uniform system. You're also talking about like private citizens' access to justice. Yeah, you're, yeah, exactly. A, a barrier to entry of like an apparent sophistication gap that occurs just because someone can't figure out the order of citation, you know, the order of signals and all this nonsense that's in the blue book. And and as you say, this is a first step toward making this a, a, a common property. And it makes sense for language to be a common property. Yeah. So from a policy perspective, you know, whether or not controlled by the Harvard Law Review Association was a good governance mechanism, I really don't have a view on that but I, I know it's not now right and you know what's what's interesting about now is because communication technologies are what they are right we can get together and we can make wikipedia right without ever seeing one another yeah people all over the world can produce this enormous repository of thought and knowledge um they can do it on a volunteer basis they can they can um do it according to norms, community norms that produce a, a, a product that you know is flawed, like any product of human construction, but that 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 serves enormous purposes in our lives. You know, in, in a world where Wikipedia is possible, um, a uh, a citation system for the law that has a more distributed governance structure is also possible, and also I think desirable. And that that's the kind of thing that I personally am looking to. Um, 
to approach. And um, I'm hoping that that will happen. You know, we've taken the first step now, you know, in the spirit of a kind of open source spirit, you know, we've taken the first step, but we'll need others to to work with us. So at some point, if, if people are interested in adding to this or subtracting from it, um, they should get going. We've given them something to work with. Let's talk about simplification, if, if you want to. I, I think we'll still have sure. time, hopefully, for the restatement stuff, too. I want to make sure we get yeah, to but that. Yeah, but we can talk about simplification for a few minutes. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had this radical suggestion last time about getting rid of most of the cruft that people see in the blue book, specification of signals, the order of citations, uh, the typography that's required that is always everything that everything that drives you to kind of thumb through the blue book uh, or baby blue at this point to find the specific way you're supposed to format something, even though if you just kind of did it naturally, you know, author, comma, title, everybody would be able to find that. Um, right. That piece. So my my sense is that although, uh, as we discussed last time, those metadata included in typography and everything else helped people at one time find, oh, this is a periodical, therefore I should go to this part of the library or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. That's no longer the case. And so increasingly, all of that looks like deadweight loss. Because we've dramatically changed the way that we find things yeah. on the internet, mm-hmm. it, it, it would make sense that we should dramatically simplify the way that we refer to documents. I can I can totally understand why the argument about baby blue needs to be basically um, um, binary compatible, if you like, with the blue book, um, right. with, even though right. the source is different. That that makes sense to me. But I wonder, like, if you had your preferences, if you had your druthers, as they say, how would you wh- – where would you start and how simple would you go? I imagine you might not go yeah. as simple as I suggested, and I'm wondering, like, why not and, and, okay. and how far would you go? So I wouldn't go – at least as an initial matter, as simply as you want to go for the following reason. So what I'm imagining your idea would lead to, this kind of radical simplification of citation structure, would be, you know, I see the basic title and author of a work, and I do a Google search, right? And I get it. Or I do, I do a search in some online database that covers these materials, and I get it. The, the problem is, you know, what level of reliability do we have there? So we, we need to make sure it's the right document. It's the right version of the document. Maybe there's like 19 versions of this document because it's, it's a work that evolved over time. You know, which mm-hmm. version? Mm-hmm. I think the citation system needs some uh, content to it so that it can, you can do quality control on mm-hmm. your search. But more, less radically, here's a few things we could do like right away. So the blue, a lot of blood in the blue book is spilled over the difference between academic documents like law review articles and regular legal documents like briefs or opinions. That's mostly just busy work. I mean, everything should be merged into one form, and the form should be the form for the standard legal documents, briefs, etc. Right? So academic legal documents shouldn't be different. Right? We should, we should do footnotes in academic legal documents, but we should do them basically in the same form that we would do a footnote in a standard legal document, right? right. That's what we should do. So th- with a little bit of work, I mean, it's, it's not, we couldn't just snap our fingers and get rid of academic legal documents. What we'd have to do is just merge them into standard legal documents with a couple of, you know, rules, and that could be done. So that, that would eliminate a lot. So here's another thing, and this is one thing that Baby Blue made a decision on. So the Blue Book, a ton of the bulk in the Blue Book is... Um, appendices that attempt to cram into blue book form legal materials from, you know, scores of countries around the world. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a there's an ideological problem with this, which is you know the Blue Book often cites these legal documents, say from Zimbabwe, in a way that doesn't resemble how the Zimbabweans um, cite their legal documents. Hmm. The Journal of International Law at NYU did a book of international citations that attempts to cite them like the countries that they come from cite hmm. them. Right? People should we think should just refer to that. Right? We don't think. Uh, you know, citing them the way the Blue Book wants them cited is necessarily the right thing to do. Most lawyers in America and most people who access the law who aren't lawyers don't cite international legal documents. And so we didn't include it, uh, in part because it's like hundreds of pages, you know, of dead weight for 99% of lawyers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a decision about coverage. Now, I, I would think the Blue Book should probably... You know, if we were to do this in a distributed way, we should, the international lawyers should probably get together and make a decision about how to cite international legal materials. And my, you know, my ideological preference would be to cite them the way the country that produces them directs that they be cited. Boy, there's so many off-ramps here. There's so many different choices that you can make about right. that, that basically call forth one's vision of what this project is, right? It, is it about unification for uh, of citation methods for aesthetic reasons for ease of finding things in order to make documents look the same to signal seriousness uh to signal care i mean stories are legion about either you know chambers or law reviews kind of judging the seriousness of a document in part by whether they're using some kind of crazy site you know, whether there's any care taken with citation yeah yeah and, and, and in fact law reviews oftentimes pick their incoming members by their <laughs> ability to you know kind of go through what you call this hazing process but if you have them defend it sometimes they'll say well you know are they do they pay attention to detail right Without regard to whether, you know, what kind of attention to detail uh, that you want. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm just wondering, like, is so, you know, citing it like the country, people in that country would cite it. I guess that serves the purpose of kind of global unification of citation so that someone from that country could pick up the document pre- produced in the United States and recognize that something from their country is being cited just by the appearance of it, the typographical appearance of it, the way things are abbreviated, the way the numbers appear in relation to the... But it may also be enough just that you have cited something in a way that someone can easily find it, maybe with a click. And maybe right. that's so enough. Th- that's, a, that's another approach that you know, I think would be very helpful. So probably what you want in a legal citation system are a bunch of rules that are absolutely necessary to lay down kind of the fundaments of the citation system. And then a rule that says, you know, beyond this, the whole point is that the, the resource be reasonably findable. Right. So mm-hmm. a person can go and using the information you've given them can find the resource. Right. That's the standard. So, you know, if you think about this for a second, this is the difference between rules and standards in law. Right? Totally. Blue book is all rules. Yeah. Rules, rules, rules. And, you know, where where was that decreed by God? So <laughs> probably a, a more intelligent approach to this in the given age where the age that we're in, where, you know, the finding tools are so much better than they used to be, right? We went from the card catalog, you know, to computerized searches and, you know, tremendous linked databases. Probably the way to do this is set up a bunch of rules, you know, not even too many, just a few that, that answer 95% of questions mm-hmm. and then set up a standard, a standard like the one that you expressed. Um, yeah. It went in doubt arrange the citation information in a way that makes the resource readily findable 
period. I have a I have a comment on the standard because uh, I think the standard is is uh, right on the money. Um, here's another service though that uh, that a reference book could provide, which is as a comment to that standard. Um, dear reader, here are some sources of ambiguity that you might not realize you're creating. So here are some tips on how when you are in the particular setting that you're in, when you're simply trying to achieve clarity and an accurate reference, um, here are some, you know, rookie mistakes to avoid. Right. And here are some examples of why this other way of doing it is better because it's more clear and more reliable. Right. So there you can actually teach something useful and good about how to live under that standard by giving people a bit more just teaching them more lessons about how to go about uh, achieving that successfully. And I think you put, you add that to the standard and now you really have everything you need, right? So I think that's absolutely right. And again, it's like (laughs) step one was get us to a point where we can begin to do stuff like that. So everything that happens from here out, I hope someone will follow the road that you're describing, right? So articulate a set of rules that cover most cases, you know, a very compact set of rules that cover most cases, provide like really good examples, which is, I think, what we've tried to do. But then, you know, stop at a certain point. Don't, don't, don't make it a Baroque, like horrifically elaborate set of rules. Stop at a certain point, articulate a standard like we've been talking about, and then do what Joe just said, which is describe some of the ways in which, you know, space has been left open and some of the things that people should be thinking about when they exercise discretion under the standard. Mm -hmm. That, I think, would be a system of citation that is right for the task, right? It's both useful and accessible. It's slimmed down and flexible. And and it, 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 it allows people to focus their energy, their, 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 you know, their detail orientation on the quality of arguments, right? And not on the details of this way you cite. It's like when you're writing a poem, you want to focus on the words that are deployed and the way they're deployed and, and not, not the color of the paper necessarily, right? Or the, Although maybe with poetry, <laughs> like, yeah. may, may, you know, it, it's, it's all, aesthetic, but you want to concentrate on your aesthetic mission. Right. And not, uh, and not uh, adhering to a particular convention. That's a mechanical mission. Exactly. Right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to do, right? But I think step one is get copyright out of the way, free up the governance mechanism, and let's see what we can do then. And I guess the only thing I would add is, um, um, and, and partly, partly to bolster my simplification idea, but is that mm-hmm. as the kinds of things that we publish and our locations for publishing them change, the possibilities for I think the twin goals of disambiguating sources and for providing more certain reference for those, you know, location and disambiguation. Right. That possibility increases as things kind of move online. You face the problem of link rot, but even a broken link provides information about how to find the new source, right? That's and right. So I wonder if, you know, if we weren't in this uh, internet age, maybe it would be harder to kind of open source the blue book and to leverage the kinds of Wikipedia type power, the, the many-to-one power of, of kind of social networking, maybe that would be harder, but, but we would still maybe want to uh, produce this kind, of, um, this, this kind of work to simplify and to, to basically to get rid of a monopoly over the system of citation. But I think especially when the kinds of publications that we are 
the kinds of writing we're doing, right? As the line between article and essay and blog and podcast, and as these things all merge together and we, you know, they're merging and they're separating, we're basically creating new forms and we don't know what those forms are going to be in the future. I just have to think that it will be, I don't know, less necessary to signal source in quite the same way that the Blue Book imagines. I mean, that's one thing we mentioned last time or, you know, two two shows ago, right? That it seems like a system of citation, which is designed around solving the problems of a different age, the problems of locating things in buildings. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, that's no longer really the problem. I, I would say one other thing, which is, you know, the governance mechanism that, you know, the Blue Book operates under the Harvard Law Review is not terribly responsive. So let's take the example of the 20th edition of the Blue Book, which just came out. So what's the biggest change between the 19th and the 20th edition? Well, the biggest change is when you cite an internet resource, you cite the, the article that, on the internet, and then you, you used to say available at and then give the URL. Now you no longer say available at. You just give the URL. Now, now this is like, you know, 2016. Uh, it's been a long time that we understood that a URL meant if you clicked on that link or if you copied that link and pasted it into your browser window, that that would produce the document, right? You didn't yeah. need the pointer available at. So, you know, lots of ink was spilled reprinting available at, available at a zillion times in large <laughs> articles that need not be spilled, right? Lots of space was taken up that could have been taken up by arguments, right? Because you got a certain amount of space in a law review, um, you know, available at occurs, a, you know, a, a bunch of times. Maybe there was a point you wanted to make that just doesn't fit into the article because of that. But that could have been gone a long time ago, right? It took a long time to get it gone. The funny thing is if you, without the available at, and now it's just a comma, I guess, if you enclose the title and author information in square brackets and you enclose the URL in regular parentheses, um, then that's Markdown. <laughs> that's right. Markdown and it will create an actual link. And if everybody would write Markdown, the world would be a better place. That's what I'll say. But uh, well, but this is an example of how yeah. you know, things could have changed a lot quicker, I think, in, in, in a governance in, in, under a governance system that was more aware of, you know, the, what's at stake. And certainly one that had more polyarchy, more sort of centers of decision making. If if people don't like that particular mode, but it's it's easier to have a, a jumping off point to create their own approach. Now you have competing approaches. Polyarchy, I'm pretty sure, is illegal in the state of Georgia. So. <laughs> Um, I think that I first came to know of Chris's existence. Oh boy! um, When he was in the antitrust division, Um, was were you in the appellate group, Chris? I was. Yeah, and um, I don't have any reason to think Chris knew of my existence. But um, no, that's not true. We worked together on stuff. I knew of your existence and and uh, was thankful for it. um, Excellent. (laughs) Um, uh, Christian will one day uh, learn to pay a compliment with just that much grace. Um, it's it's a long way off yet, I think. Uh, but uh, so, uh, you know, antitrust and teaching antitrust, which I've done for a number of years now and, and having worked at the division uh, a little bit, it's like a tidal wave um, and it hasn't crested yet for me. The power that having lots of people making independent decisions about what makes sense to them and Mm -hmm. what they think is good and what they think isn't good and where they want to put their resources and 
their energy. I've been, so much I've good been in the so, world has come from this. I've fact. been so waiting for the return of Adam Smith to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and here he, is, <laughs> here, he is, here he is. Here he is. You should have worn your white beard for today. What, he doesn't so even right. have a beard, does he? No. Mm. Yeah, um, okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm this, such an idiot. Th- this is a this is a really positive thing that that I, yeah, I I can't. I mean, I was that is in the world now that we should all be grateful for. I think. Oh, I think that's that exactly there's right. This, people had this insight at some point that this actually made a difference. My suggestion about simplification is somewhat snarky for sure, and but I I can't emphasize enough how awesome it is to get out from under the. It makes no sense for a private monopoly to control the system of citation in the entire legal industry. It just makes zero sense to me. Yeah, and the thing is, like you say your suggestion might be snarky, but often it's difficult to tell the difference between snarky and brilliant. <laughs> it's like that It's like that spinal tap line. It's a fine line between stupid and clever. Yeah, and my, my suggestion goes up to 11. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the whole point, I think, you know, and this relates to what Joe was just saying, is it, we'll sort it, you know, people will sort it out. Yeah. And having a bunch of different points of view and people with different goals helps these things be sorted out better. So that's what I'm hoping, and you know, we'll see how it goes. Well, congratulations on shipping. Um, Thank you. Yeah, because that that is probably the hardest part is actually to ship. So yeah, so I'll it. tell you what would be great is if you know at some point we got some assurances that wouldn't be we wouldn't be sued, and then I could publicly identify and thank the students who put in so much work on this and really um, deserve the, the lion's share of the credit, um, not me. So I, I feel a little bit bad about that and and wish i could we'll have we'll have you back on because as as america's faculty colloquium yeah this is the place to make such universal thanks to the legal academy and now i want to ask about something the shipping status of which strikes me as quite curious um or or if not its status it's it's sort of ultimate uh reason for being and that is this restatement project that you're involved in the restatement of copyright law now one would have thought um that the restatement tradition is for things as to which there are no comprehensive statutes already. Well, can I, can I interject another thing I want to know? Please do. Have you used your power in this regard to put into the restatement of copyright that the blue book is uncopyrightable? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. I, I think that would be totally proper. I don't see no. any problem. And as he's explained, it's already in the statute. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So, you know, this is funny, this thing about federal statutes. So the the restatement, when people think of the American Law Institute, which um, is the institution responsible for the, rest- the various restatements of law, they, they probably think about the restatement of torts or the restatement of contract. So these are classic common law areas. Now, even within these common law areas, there are lots of statutes. So there are lots of state statutes, for example, setting forth um, damages uh, rules that supersede to some degree the general rules of judgment common law in that area, or there are lots of state tort statutes that ex- establish certain standards of care in particular instances, like for professionals. Um, you know, the, the ALI traditionally has ignored these. Um, why? Because they wanted to kind of set out the kind of general rules of tort, for example, in the same way that a, a law school would do this. A practitioner would have to consult his or her own state statutes, whatever state they were practicing in, to see, you know, what variances from the law had been enacted in those statutes. So now there are other restatement projects that do involve statutes more directly. So there's a restatement of unfair competition, which touches on the Lanham Act, which is a pretty comprehensive statute. 
there's a restatement of foreign relations that, that touches on at least a couple of statutes. There's precedent for this. It's, it's, and, and more specifically, if you think of the copyright statute, there are parts of the copyright statute that are very elaborate where, so for example, the rules for you know, cable retransmission, mm. where maybe there's not a lot to say because the statute is at least reasonably prescriptive. And then there are parts of copyright law where the statute doesn't say anything at all. And these are some of the most important parts of copyright law. Like, so for example, what the infringement standard is, that is not specified in the copyright statute, which is kind of shocking when you first learn copyright law. Um, it's wholly judge-made or the rules of secondary liability, not specified in the Copyright Act, which is also kind of shocking when you first study copyright. You might expect rules in there. No. Not only not specified, but also not even provided for, right? Yeah, not there. Right. I mean, yeah. you can read some parts of the Copyright Act to suggest that there'll be secondary liability, but you know, essentially, judges just fall back on the common law of secondary liability. They've adapted it in the copyright context in ways that are interesting and largely actually pretty smart. And on this terrain, what we're doing in the Restatement of Copyright is no different from what the Restatement of Torts does, because there's, the statute doesn't do anything. So then there are other areas of the statute where the statute does something, but it it, it, it it's not comprehensive in the sense that it doesn't answer all questions. And what, what courts do is their normal gap-filling function. So, for example, you know, I read to you before some text that says that uh, copyright subsists in a work of creative expression that's fixed in a tangible medium. So you know, the, the question of what fixed in a tangible medium means is actually <laughs> interesting. The, the statute tells you that that is the question. It doesn't actually tell you with any specificity how to answer it, right? So the courts have you know, thought about this question of fixation. Um, they've asked, well, is a 1.2 second fixation on a hard drive enough to, to be fixed? And, you know, they've, they've in one case said no, right? But there's no real principle for why they say yes or no. And so it would be interesting if the restatement could, um, discover some coherent approach to this and, you know, explain it. Yeah, and fixation is a great uh, example of the fact that um, – Do you want to distinguish for the listeners real quick like what the difference between uh, expression that's fixed and not fixed, like just some paradigmatic examples? So if I uh, – reverting to our earlier discussion about sheet music, right? Yeah. So if I'm thinking of an original tune uh, and I'm humming along uh, but I don't write it down in any musical notation – uh, and there's nothing that records the humming of the tune that I'm humming along. Right. Right. Um, if, if there's no recording and no writing, it hasn't been fixed anywhere. And when the humming is over and I go on and I do something else, let's say I was just humming as I was cleaning my house, right? I stopped cleaning my house. I go do something else. Um, you know, that, that work might have been a creative work, but it hasn't been fixed anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, so far as the 76 Act goes, uh, there's no copyright interest that's attached. Uh, it's not copyrighted because it hasn't been fixed yet. But if you do right. write it down, uh, then it or is, record it, um, then it well, is. Well, that's fixed. another way to fix it, right? It's that's another just way to fix a, it. A, a, a but you don't it have in a to, phono record yeah. instead of a copy, but under the terms of the statute. But and just um, you don't have to register it anymore. Is the other point? It's enough to fix it. Yes, there aren't any formalities required, and and of course, before uh, for federal copyright to attach, uh, it it attaches when there are formalities and it's published. Um, but we're in a very different world now under the 76 Act. But the, yeah. the, the thing I was going to observe about fixation uh, in the context of this restatement discussion and why it might be desirable, you know, fixation, uh, although it is defined in the statute, even in that, even in the context of that definition, uh, 
we look at fixation for two for I would say we look at it in for two, in two different contexts and arguably for two different reasons. Um, one is the context of figuring out is there a copyright interest, which is what we were just talking about. Has an has an original work been fixed for the first time? And now there's a copyright interest that attaches. But you also would look at it for infringement purposes, right? Because right. the, the infringement, the, the rights of the right owner are defined in terms of, among other things, embodying uh, the work in another copy, right? Reproducing the work in a copy. So, And copy is defined as a thing in which the work is fixed. So to figure out if there's been an infringement, you have to figure out if someone created something that's fixed, um, and so this question of is it is there a copy that is of more than transitory duration, which is the phrase used in the statute, it's important not just for figuring out if a right exists, but if an infringement's occurred. And those are two very different inquiries, or they might be. Right? So if I sing Eddie Murphy's party all the time, as I'm prone to do, I'll, I'll, I'll hit the stop button first, because if I keep the record button on, that'll be fixed. Right. right. If we so ship you it. wouldn't you wouldn't want the <laughs> right. So if you want to say there are many uh, reasons we would not want to record that. I want to rev- <laughs> if you say I want to avoid infringement. Right. Yeah. I think you wouldn't want to perform it publicly <laughs> right. uh, because that is another form of infringement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the pr- public performance right does not rely on the creation of a copy. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, but the reproducing it in a copy does. Mm-hmm. So if as uh, assuming I. Well, yeah, the, the, the public performance right is defined in an interesting way about, you know, doing something in the presence of a small circle of, fr- of family and friends. I mean, it references people not in your family. It's interesting. a very odd yeah. definition. But singing it in the shower is fine. Yeah, it's not a public performance. I don't even have to take care of, I don't even have to take advantage of fair use. It's just not, not no, even just, a thing yeah, that's because, regulated. Because you haven't publicly performed it or yeah. made a copy of it. Yeah. I, I don't mean to get so far afield here. So, yeah. No, but this is what, this is part of what copyright law is like. Um, is, okay, what is the statute layout for me? What are the things the statute doesn't quite lay out for me? What's the reason I'm asking the question? And as so, I was just yeah. trying to point out, asking about whether it's fixed when it's an infringement inquiry versus when it's in a validity inquiry that might feel different and cause you to think about different considerations. You know what's interesting to me about the, about this thing is that um, it seems like Chris is, in, is engaged partly in another Baby Blue project. Right. That that re-expressing the copyright statute in a different way may help you to understand it. Right. In addition to all the kind of filling in like the judicial decisions, which which uh, elaborate well, on what on what a broad standard is. I do want to say that we're const- this the statement project is a lot more constrained in the following mm-hmm. sense. So what our job is, is to do is to understand how the courts have received this language and how they've interpreted it. We We are aiming to describe accurately what the judicial reception of bits and pieces of the Copyright Act have been, and then um, to note where there is some division of opinion in the judiciary about the meaning of a particular piece of the Copyright Act or some lack of clarity about the meaning of a particular piece of the Copyright Act, and where that occurs, a division of opinion, lack of clarity, we are at large to recommend a particular course, you know, in recommending a particular course, we're going to have to give some reasons why we think this would be consistent with the purposes of copyright, the Copyright Act, Congress's intent, etc. We're not entirely at large, right? We've got to give reasons. And, you know, to the extent that we give reasons and they're persuasive, then maybe this has an effect. Um, But, you know, I do want to observe that given 
how much judicial interpretation of the Copyright Act has occurred and is required to actually run the copyright system. Yes, there is a statute, but I don't think the essential function of the restatement is any different in copyright than it is in tort or contract. I think these these projects are very much alike. So what would be an example, from, from, from your uh, experience, what would be an example of a statute where you think having a restatement wouldn't really, there, there isn't a conceptual space for it? Is there a statute you could think of, of, of which you might be prepared to say that? Huh. Um, Maybe is, is part of, and let me, while you're thinking of that, let me, let me yeah. uh, indicate or, or question whether or not the lack of a strong federal agency is part of the way the law exists in copyright that distinguishes it from something like the Clean Water Act or mm -hmm. the federal rodenticide and fungicide and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, now, I don't know what Chris the, is going to say here, but let me just say this. This is why our shows go this long, because it takes us this long to get to thoughts that are this good. <laughs> Because <laughs> well, you know that I'm a sucker for the institutional argument, and I think that that is. Well, and, and uh, I, I never thought about it in that way. I didn't make I, an argument; I just asked a question. Yeah, but I, yeah, but, yeah. I know you did, but that's a it's a really good thought. But, I think. but, but it, I, it I, is I don't know what Chris is going to say. But it I is think, the case yeah. that in you know, if you look at the tele, uh, the Communications Act of 1934 as amended by the Telecommunications Act of 1996, or you look at the environmental statutes uh, or the federal energy regulatory statutes, or you've got these very course, yeah. strong agencies yeah. that f do an enormous amount of filling in and gap filling and interpreting and... And the court has enabled that role. Yeah. Right. Uh, in, a, in a really significant way. And in copyright, you know, the Librarian of Congress and the Copyright Office, I mean, they do play a role, but it isn't anything like... Right. And, and interestingly, the PTO also doesn't play this role. So IP is an area where there is, where there isn't an agency doing the kind of stuff federal agencies usually do. Mm. Right. Um, so do you think the, you know, um, and even in the tax code, right, the IRS is playing a very robust federal agency role. Yeah. So in terms of naming a statute where I think this wouldn't be appropriate, I'm going to, I'm just going to like explicitly duck that question <laughs> because I don't want to have to face Ricky Rivez, the director of ALI, and my former dean when he says, you know, we were planning to do a restatement of the Federal Rodenticide Act, and you, you have screwed us up. Yeah, because uh, everyone yeah. knows that if you make a statement like that on oral argument yeah. on this podcast, yeah, that's it's, like it's, it's death. It's just yeah. death. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to duck that, but I'm, at least I'm, I'm being honest enough to duck it, honestly, <laughs> rather than duck it like a politician and give you some nonsense. So um, in terms of, um, you know, a federal agency, if I thought that, you know, the Copyright Office had the power to issue regulations that would be given Chevron deference and that all the gap filling was going to occur that way and that, in fact, you know, the, the federal courts would be substantially assisted in that gap filling... I'm not sure that that would be an instance where you wouldn't do a restatement, but I, I think you would be paying a lot of attention to the, those regulations that were doing the gap filling. Now, you know, we are paying attention to the Copyright Office because the Copyright Office does some of that. They, they do articulate views, and you know, those views can be quite persuasive, and where they're persuasive, courts will pay attention to them. And you know, since courts would pay attention to them, so would we, and we do. Um, right. So it's not as if the Copyright Office doesn't play a role. I think you know, the, the actions of the Copyright Office will play a significant role in our writing of the restatement, and they already have. But I think you are right, just as a, as a descriptive matter, that um, the Copyright Office 
although it employs a lot of really smart people and they do a lot of really great work, doesn't play the same kind of role that an executive agency, for example, that's making regulations plays would play in another area where you know the agency is empowered to interpret the statute. They they're given Chevron deference. They're you know they're in the executive branch, right? There's a whole bunch of differences. Should they be in that role? I mean, I I, I really like the suggestion that where there's a demand for elaboration and there isn't a governmental entity whose job it is to elaborate, except in case by case adjudication, you know that demand will somehow be filled. If there's uh, if it's a if that kind of elaboration is a public good, then very likely you're going to see something like ALI or someone spring up to kind of to kind of fill that role. But does the fact that you guys are doing this suggest that, well, maybe maybe the, is it uh, the Librarian of Congress or the PTO? I mean, one of these should... should... Can I give a totally insane answer that, that, I would Chris, love it that because, Chris would never give? Well, I, I would love that because that's normally my job and okay. I want to be seen as the reasonable person <laughs> so on this here's, episode, here's what yeah. here's what actually needs to happen. You pull together um, the... Federal Trade Commission, the Patent and Trademark Office, the Copyright Office. There needs to be a federal competition commission. This is a, this it, is an all star entity, and it needs to pull together all of the the antitrust and IP stuff because those are two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. which is structuring the competitive marketplace. The board of necessary monopolies. <laughs> Yikes! Um, and uh, and in this federal competition commission, you 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 sort of work out all these issues, and I think it should. I myself would confer on it the power to engage in rulemaking and uh, other activities that are uh, that warrant judicial deference. And if you were to write a traditional article on this with three hundred footnotes, you would cite, I think, Chris's. Um, restatement, Chris and others' restatement, as evidence that such a thing is needed. Apropos of this, we are having a conference in Washington, D.C., the Engelberg Center, which is a a center uh, for um, innovation law and policy at NYU, is co-sponsoring with the Duke Innovation Policy Center um, a conference on the Copyright Office of the 21st Century. So we're, we're, we're asking some of these questions, right? So how should the Copyright Office be reconfigured, if it should be reconfigured, to take account of some of these issues? Um, so yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a discussion that I, I, I know will be going on. Awesome. Chris, is there, if, if, um, if we stop now, would you be upset if, no, no, if no, we didn't I, include us? Is there one thing you'd want to say that we didn't no, no, get I'm in? No, good. I have to go to physical therapy, actually. So. Oh, really? Okay. And we wish you a speedy recovery from your uh, elbow surgery. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Hopefully in the next six weeks or so, I will be more back to normal, which would be really nice. Uh, well, well, thanks in, in your decrepit state for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, you cannot hear my decrepitude on the air. <laughs> I, I did not detect it at all. In fact, you know, this is, this is like a, some kind of weird medical Turing test where, uh, you know, yeah. I, I was totally fooled that you had some kind of elbow infirmity. Well, this is my decrepit voice. When I am <laughs> not injured, I sound a lot like Nick. <laughs> it's, I, I never, I never would have known. So, what we need to do is we need to have you back again after all this kerfuffle is behind us, yeah. and you can you can thank the students, and we can talk about like yeah. ne- next steps for Baby Blue, and we can check in on what's going on in the restatement, and maybe even awesome. talk about some of your academic work as well. Sounds good. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye.